Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Tuesday morning, the 4th of April. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. RTE remains very much in the spotlight once again this week. The Irish Congress of Trade Unions will debate a motion on the pay of the stars at its biannual conference. Two Oireachtas committees will hear again from the RTE executives. The doll will spend a lot of time debating the current scandal this afternoon. The government is uh, to approve an external audit and new legislation will be introduced in the Shannon tomorrow which would certainly make a difference to those working in RTE and on the best salaries available in that institution. It's being brought forward by independent Senator Ronan Mullen who's on the line Uh, and perhaps Ronan Mullen you could begin by telling us what this bill would mean in effect. Well this bill first of all sets a cap at salaries in public service broadcasting so we're talking about TG, Caharan and RTE under the broadcasting bill and I suppose one of the things I've wrestled with is how do you deal with a situation where some people are directly employed and some people are on contracts, one or more contracts as we've seen. So what this bill does is, howsoever the person is employed, the remuneration cannot exceed, and we've pegged it at the Minister for Communication salary and ministerial allowance, which would come in at 195000 Now, that might be too much or it might be too little. Mm. People can have a discussion about that as the bill gets debated in the Shannon. But the principle, and I think it's the first time this has been done in legislation, is to have a cap on salaries in broadcasting, in public service broadcasting. Now, there's also in the, law, in the legislation a requirement that any salary in excess of 107000 again, that's pegged to a TD salary, that that would be published, so there'd be publication of any such salaries and the bill makes it an offence to knowingly cause inaccurate uh, information to be given to the public about salaries Um, and there's other provisions as well uh, around uh, I suppose accountability so this is about capping salaries, it's about transparency about salaries and another accountability provision says look in public service broadcasting it's a term of your contract that honouring the codes about being impartial and objective and keeping personal views out of any coverage of issues that's something I've included as well and um, and also finally I suppose where there's 
establish breaches by the existing compliance committee under the broadcasting legislation uh, that the public service broadcaster would, would publish and make known what the sanctions can be, whether it's uh, personal apology being required or suspension of employment or so on. So look, this is an attempt to get a conversation going about accountability at a number of different levels, but the core part of it, I suppose, is the capping of right. salary. Alright, and uh, a lot of people would think that the Minister for Communications earns a lot of money with a salary of €195,161 but uh, obviously that would mean that if the stars in RTE couldn't earn more than that, that many of them working there now would have to take substantial pay cuts. Well of course in in fairness what the legislation would also do is say look at existing contracts aren't affected you know you can't do this kind of thing retrospectively assuming for a moment the government uh, says listen we like this legislation we're going to roll with it we're either going to give you time to push it through the sand mm. Janet and find someone to bring it through the doll or we're going to take this on in some way ourselves mm. no matter how this would be done it would always concern future contracts as opposed to existing contracts mm. in fairness yeah, but you when know, those contracts are being renewed because a lot of those contracts are, are renewed every six months or every 12 months. Uh, this cap would apply, I take it. Well, that's what I would like to see happen. So and that would mean effectively uh, cuts of €100,000 to the salaries of many of these household names, the RTE stars. It would if it was accepted. Now, what I have said in this legislation as well is that people are, you know, remember, one reason why it's reasonable to to, to cap salaries here is that those stars have other opportunities to monetize their celebrity. And we've seen about this in recent days Mm. in terms of endorsements and cars and all the rest of it. Mm. But my legislation makes it clear they're entitled to do that once they've permission from the DG, once it's not in fulfillment of the objections of the of the objects of the broadcaster. In other words, as long as it's not getting pay Mm. for work done at RTE by another name um, and, and again keeping their own personal political views out of things because if they're in public service broadcasting they have a particular obligation but um, I, I have no problem with people monetizing their celebrity what I do have a problem is because the taxpayer's money effectively through the licence is contributing 55 or 60% of the kitty and because money is fungible um, then I think the taxpayer shouldn't be implicated in excessive salaries. I think it's also shown to have been very bad for morale uh, in the organisation itself because you know and I know that the majority of people working in media and uh, and in journalism are are getting mm. very modest salaries by comparison. Will it result in any savings? I mean, if it was to be accepted, uh, that if you were to see people going from 350,000 or 280,000 down to 195,000, surely the same people are going to ask, why do I have to do... Uh, as much work as I used to do. Uh, A lot of uh, these stars, uh, their radio programmes would run for eight or nine months over the year. Uh, Maybe they'd cut that back uh, to six or four months over the year, which would require somebody else to be employed to fill in that gap or else the licence fee payer uh, would be watching more repeats. Well, uh, I mean, we've seen, I think, reported that Patrick Keelty is going to get 250000 for what I imagine is a one-day-a-week or a one-and-a-half-day-a-week job coming in uh, to present the Late Late Show, no, no doubt with, with consultations with researchers and the behind-the-scenes people who work on all this for much more modest pay. Um, my own view is this. I, I, I hear the argument made that if you cut back 
on these salaries you will lose talent they'll go abroad they'll go elsewhere they'll go to the purely uh, commercial sector first of all that doesn't happen as much as it's claimed I mean and when we look for example when Pat Kenny went to news talk from RTE um, the ratings did not collapse under Sean O'Rourke nor have they collapsed subsequently uh, under Claire, Claire Burns programme likewise when Marion Finucane died and was replaced mm. by Brendan O'Connor you know RTE has a share of the market which is pretty solid anyway ironically it's the late late and Mr. Toberty's programme that has experienced a, 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 a gradual drop over the last 10 years as far as I'm aware. I think it's also no harm to say that RTE should be a nursery of new talent. If there's turnover that isn't necessarily a bad thing you know people were all very proud of Terry Wogan when he went to England and made it big and there's no reason why RTE as a public service broadcaster funded substantially by the taxpayer shouldn't, shouldn't say you know good luck to people who can go to pastures greener but I think that um, they don't have to be paid Lionel Messi level salaries uh, to um, this should be more about serving the community Mm. than serving the celebrity I'd be uh, very questioning of uh, the listenership figures uh, in RTE uh, if I was running RTE uh, and I'd be asking uh, whether they were worth it uh, because whilst their listenership figures are big in numbers. They're the only station in the country that broadcasts to 26 counties or 32 counties, if you like. Uh, but in each of those counties, more, much more, substantially more people are listening to local radio. They're not really drawing big audiences. That's right. I suppose um, they're getting a certain section all across the country, where, but, but they're being beaten locally. That, that's true. Uh, they're being beaten locally and geographically very often. Um, I, I agree with you, and I think that this is, you know, there has been a, a, a clear case of RTE believing its own propaganda, if you like, falling, falling in love with mm. its own image to some yeah. degree. And, you know, I, I value public service broadcasting. I don't want to see it got rid of, but I think, you know, a, a smaller, humbler, uh, more focused RTE with a different culture, a culture that's more focused on serving the community rather than serving you know, a corporate mentality and a celebrity-led mentality I think would be better for all of us. Okay, um, but uh, just going back to that point uh, of how a few months of the year they work presently, uh, would uh, that input be reduced if you reduce their salaries? Uh, would, would, Would they work fewer hours in line with the reduction? Well, that all depends on whether they're willing to sign a new contract under mm. under these more modest terms. I mean, two, one or other things will happen. Either they will accept the new realities and you know be glad of mm. their continued continued profile, which RTE gives them. Remember, yeah. this is my point. They get more than just money when they rise high in the ranks in RTE. They become celebrities who can attract uh, other. Uh, they can monetize their their, their fame mm. in other ways, as I've said. So I think that would still be attractive to many of them. But where it isn't, and where people find, you know, a more generous employer to give them more for doing less, well then other people will become the new talents and they will come up through the system and they will become the celebrities yeah. then because of the new role that they enjoy. But they work for themselves allegedly. Why do they uh, sign contracts uh, and so on? Why, why aren't they employed by RTE? If they have to go to work every day at RTE, why aren't they employees like anybody else? 
Well, RTE has chosen, and they have chosen... Why is RTE allowed to choose that? Because, I mean, there's savings in that for RTE. They don't pay sick days, they don't pay holidays, they don't pay employers, PRSI, uh, and so on, and basically... uh, Contracts for services, external contracts. I would agree with you. I think, uh, also, by the way, one thing in my bill is that Mm. I, I say that when they're arriving at these salaries subject to the cap yeah. they can take into account the benefits that go with being a public service employee pension and so on so there there needs to be uh, i think a rebalancing of salaries within rte mm. if it's and, and i would certainly favor and i think a lot of people on the lower salaries in rte would favor uh, being employed on the basis of the public service and being in some way pegged to public service pay scales and i think that would you know there would be other benefits i think for a greater number of employees by that mm. happening more often and that it should be very much the exception if it's to be allowed at all that mm. people can go for external contracts. I haven't sought to ban these external contracts. That would be a big step. I would, I would, I would need to put on my actuarial hat and, mm. and, and do an awful lot more research. It might be time that somebody that. did because uh, a lot of the presenters uh, who are working as contractors are setting up their own companies so that they are self-employed and as companies uh, they're writing a lot of tax for expenses incurred like recruiting people or training their staff. I mean, why would somebody working for RTE have staff working for them to help them to go to work in RTE? Yeah, well, this is it. And clearly, also, of course, it has contributed to uh, it being very opaque then how much people are actually paid. And this is one of the things that I was, I spent time on as I've been, you know, Michael, I, I called for a pegging of public service broadcasting salaries to, to, to public sector pay scales back in 2019. So I've spent a good bit of time looking at this issue mm. since. And one of the challenges was, well, how do you craft legislation that takes into account, you know, these kind of hidden ways that are maybe not so easy to spot ways that people earn money by, as you said, having setting up companies and how much then do those companies um, pay the, the celebrity broadcaster and are there more than one such contracts? And we've had to do a bit of work on this to try and come up with a wording that captures the totality of the situation, mm. no matter how the, the contract is constructed, that what you're looking to see, what is the overall remuneration uh, that the person is getting out of this situation. Mm. Clearly, it has been financially advantageous for these big names to set up companies and work it through that way. And I think as more and more questions are now being asked about what has been going on in RTE, perhaps that issue as well will come under the spotlight, whether these external contracts should be allowed. Mm. And these people are the elite, aren't they? I mean, they are the people who are providing public service broadcasting in this country, uh, given the amount of money that they're on. Uh, Do you believe that it's possible uh, to deliver public service broadcasting and be so removed from the reality of the lives of the people that you're broadcasting to? Well, I've been slow to kind of get into that level of judgment on the individuals but of course if you have a person who is on a massive salary and they're talking to people who are who are very put upon financially and otherwise you can argue that it must be more difficult for them to connect I suppose that's true of any of us that has the good fortune to be on a decent salary compared with other people in our society who struggle you know and we all have to to be honest about that um, I've no problem with generous salaries uh, for hard work being done. Mm. My problem is with the culture of excess 
My problem was with the kind of propagandistic narrative that this had to be done in order to guarantee a certain level of public service. I don't think that's what public service broadcasting should be about at all. There, you know, I, I, would, I prefer the idea of public service broadcasters recognising mm. we are in a very fortunate position, we are employees, we have the yeah. benefits of being the public service. And what goes with that in exchange for that security is that you don't get stratospheric salaries, mm. but you do get, you know, you are kind of identified as a kind of a trusted yeah. voice. And hats off to all those mm. who, who without that cushion of public sector um, pay have managed to give a great public service not just in local radio but in other sectors of the mm. media as well. well. I think it's that out of touch elitism that has led to people turning off the stars in RTE and tuning in to local radio and that's repeated in every county of uh, the country uh, and the huge money that they're getting at the moment if it was to be reduced to the similar uh, earnings of uh, the communications minister, 109,000, uh, 110,000 uh, euro uh, a year. Um, uh, sorry, it's uh, 195,000 195, yeah, <laughs> 195, yeah. a year. Uh, like the star saying, well, I'll only work six months of the year instead of 12 months of the year. Uh, could it be that they'll only do a, a radio programme or only do a television programme rather than doing both? Well, I, I don't see why that needs to be the case. I mean, if, if we get salaries under control, uh, I think people need to recognise that they need to put in the same hard work that other people do for more modest salaries. So I would hope that, that, that actually you would continue to get you know, a high level of productivity for what is still a very, very decent salary. And if they're not willing uh, to contract on that basis, well, then there are other people coming through the ranks. These are mm. not the only brain surgeons in town, you know. Yeah. And uh, there's lots of talented people in media, in journalism, working on, you know, for, for relatively modest incomes. I think it's a great thing that the public service broadcaster would be a nursery for those people. And one way of ensuring that it can be a nursery for new talent is by not allowing people to sit on the top of the tree enjoying very large um, salaries and not wanting to move from that perch. Okay, Senator Mullen, thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Thank you, Michael. Independent Senator Ronan Mullen. Now, if you want to make comment, as always, we'd love to hear from you. 0419832000. Text or WhatsApp 0861800658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. 3,699 children don't have a place that they can call their home. 8,742 adults without a home. That's a total of 12,441 people who were in emergency accommodation last month. Now, that's the worst figure ever on record, but at least there wasn't a tsunami of evictions that some were predicting. That seemed to be the response from the Minister for Housing, Dara O'Brien. Let's speak to Mike Allen, Advocacy Director with Focus Ireland. And a very good morning to you, Mike, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. What did you make of that response from the Minister? He also said that the increase in May was less than the increases that we would have seen in other months recently. Yeah, I, I think it was a quite a worrying response. Uh, so homelessness went up by uh, over 180, and as you say, uh, over 100 of that increase were, were, were children. At one stage, that would have been a front-page headline, homelessness goes up by that, and 100 more children homeless. The fact that we've been doing things so much 
things have been so bad uh, over the last year. Now the minister is sort of, you know, welcoming this almost as, as good news. Nobody, nobody who understands homelessness or actually, you know, is directly involved in it said there was going to be a tsunami. Um, Focus Island was quite clearly saying, like, the end in the eviction ban would mean that there would be an increase in homelessness. And there's been a 30% increase in homelessness over a year. Um, we said it was going to be a long, slow, and a rising tide of homelessness. And that's exactly what, what had happened. So mm. it's, it, it, it's what we need. It, people listening to these figures and, and, and the numbers going up again, you could almost forgive people for feeling that this is inevitable and nothing to be done about it. And what we've really got to remind people, we've got to constantly say is, this is not a natural phenomenon. It, you know, it, it, it is a result of bad policies and different policies, better policies, would really, really make a difference. And the, the sort of response that, well, this is a bit better than it, it could have been and it's not as bad as we thought, and, and, and having that sort of tit for tat, um, mm. which all the politicians go into, I would not, wouldn't be picking the, the, the minister out on this, um, really undermine the sense, the public sense that we need that this is a solvable problem. We need the political parties to come together in a consensus on how this is to be solved and consistently deliver that over a number of years and end this scourge of homelessness. Um, on its own merit, yeah, it is uh, an incredibly... Uh, embarrassing, shameful situation uh, for a country of uh, the size to be in, to have so many people without a place that they can call their home. Um, but if there wasn't a tsunami of uh, evictions in May, uh, I think it's probably true to say there's been a tsunami of eviction notices uh, and re-triggering of eviction notices, is it? Yes, that's, that's what's happening. So, so, one of the, so we know that a large number of, of landlords are leaving the market, um, we're not. So this doesn't mean that homelessness is, the, is to be blamed on landlords. Uh, there should be sufficient social housing for for, for, for people who be the landlords are leaving. But it is a fact that landlords leaving uh, the market is constricting the market. So how that's playing out is that the numbers of people becoming homeless has only risen slightly, and some some counties it hasn't risen at all. But the number of people being able to leave homelessness, find new homes, has fallen. So that's you know so there's fewer and fewer people leaving, the same number of people coming in, and that pushes the number up. And the reason people can't leave is two reasons for that. One is well, all these landlords are left, so there's no private rented accommodation to, to get. And the second is the social housing that's becoming available. There's not enough of it, but it's not being used most effectively to drive down the homelessness figures. So the, the, the minister would say that delivered a, a record number of social housing as in you know, mm. last year. Didn't hit the target, but still it was a, a, a record number, and you have to welcome that. But delivering that number amount of new social housing didn't have an impact on the homelessness figures. So quite clearly, we need to have a better link between the, the availability of new social housing and a fairer share of that going to the households who've been trapped in homelessness for long periods of time. Do we so have the wherewithal? Do we have the wherewithal to deliver social housing? Well, we deliver, as, as the Minister says, we're delivering more than we have done for... for mm, but uh, we can't meet our targets. Uh, and uh, I think a lot of people would be hoping uh, in the budget, for example, that more money would be put into social housing. But if we can't spend the money that's already there, uh, what's the point in throwing any more money at it? Yeah, I mean, we need to make sure that the money is available there, but we need to... It's quite clear it's not just money that, that that's, hold it, that's holding it back. Um, there, we've been... Focus Ireland... Uh, had a seminar earlier this year looking at the number of 
and commenced planning permissions are in Dublin and other major cities. So that's private developers who got planning permission for a major development of apartments and so on, and now cannot or do not want to proceed. And we're saying that in many of those cases, those are good projects that are at a fairly advanced stage, the planning's all done and agreed, that the state should take those over and build them. That would be a, a much faster way of, of delivery. I think part of the problem is everybody in the public service and in the political is, is, political side is, is is worried about making mistakes by doing something. If we do that, somebody might criticise us. And they're not worried about being criticised for doing nothing. And we've got to increase the criticism that we have as a public as, uh, uh, about situations where nothing is done and be a bit more understanding that when you're desperately trying to solve some problem, now and again, some some, some mistakes are made. And mm. I think that that balance of public criticism about about the public service is something that we really need to shift because it's it's rebounding on the public when, when the public service are, are too scared to take any risks. Mm. Yeah, well, it's also uh, incredible to think, is it not, uh, that we've been looking at a, a crisis for 10 or 15 years and year by year, the crisis worsens despite all of the good minds and all of uh, the money that uh, is being put to work on this. Absolutely, and all the hard work because um, you know public servants in, in the Department of Housing, the local authorities and our own staff and the staff in the other homeless organisations are working extremely hard. And it, there is, a, there's, I think there's a real risk at the moment that we're making a decision as a society as to whether homelessness is something we're just going to shrug our shoulders and say that it goes up every month and mm. it's not really worth talking about it. Or so re-gauge um, ourselves and say, well, actually, this, you know, there are things we could do here. There's an additional sort of um, mobilization of, of effort and resources and, and, and uh uh, desire for the good that uh, we can, as an Irish society, deliver to, to solve this. And that's very definitely where we are. Like, there are countries that have solved this. Nobody solves it overnight. Everybody has found it difficult. But some countries have solved it. And Finland is the obvious example we always use. 20 years ago, Finland had a higher level of homelessness than we had. And since that period of time, the last 10 years, we've gone up and up. They've put, had in place a consistent cross-party, cross-government uh, through thick and thin commitment to tackling homelessness, and they're down to virtually zero. Now, we could do that. There's no reason why we couldn't do that. Mm. Um, what is stopping us? I, I mean, what is the difference in the two approaches? There's a num- there are a number of differences, but I think one of the fundamental ones is that the, the strategy in Finland to tackle homelessness was continued despite changes in government and changes in minister. Mm. Well, I've been working for Focus Ireland, there must have been about eight ministers for housing and a similar number of people working in the public service. Yeah. All, you know, mm. the, the public servants, all very good, very dedicated, mm. but constant topping and changing. Uh, everybody's got their own uh, crisis response and nobody is properly understanding the, the, the analysis that was, was done earlier on and the, the, the things that are in place. So particularly in housing, things take quite a long time to move from a plan to actually having the house. Mm. If you constantly have people coming in and changing the plan and panicking into mm. something new every couple of years, you just smash that up. So the absence of a, uh, the, the absence of a political consensus about the handle this and the constant 
uh, arguments, the political arguments between the, 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 the different spokespeople on it, uh, don't create a context in which it's likely to be solved. So mm. I think that would be one of the fundamental things that we need. Okay, and you hear all sorts of reasons as well why we can't bring empty housing stock uh, into play so that people could live in buildings we're walking by every day, wondering why is that being left idle or end up falling apart as the case may be. But is that a question of bring me a solution rather than a problem? Well, this is a a classic example of how we we, we treat these things. You know, regularly you get this this enormous figure, I think 130,000, 130,000 housing units which are vacant, and it'd be easy to bring them back. So that sort of framing of the question of the, the problem is massively exaggerating uh, what is potentially there and massively underestimating how difficult it is. There's probably about 40,000, something in that sort of region of, of units that could be bought or introduced. It will be difficult to do so. Let's get on and do it and have mm-hmm. a sort of thing that recognises that it's a relatively small number and it's difficult just because of, but we end up because we think this, we have this rhetorical thing that's that it's going to be easy and somebody should just do it. Yeah. But it turns out to be a little bit complicated. Everybody gives up and walks away. And a few years come, come, we go around and we come with exactly the same high number and simplicity of solution. The mm. problems are difficult. That doesn't mean we should run away from them. It means we should have long-term, consistent, realistic plans to solve them. Mm. And I suppose that's the story of how we got here, where we are today. And the question is, how do we put that behind us and move on and solve uh, this problem? But as things stand, with people facing eviction, that tsunami of eviction notices uh, that have been served on people, is this just going to get worse month on month? Well, as things are at the moment, the government continues to do the, just do the things it's doing. There are good things the government is doing. There's no question about that. It's just not doing enough good things and not doing them quickly enough. If it continues doing the same things at the same, same speed, yes, inevitably it'll get worse. But it could do additional things and it could do things quicker. And that's why, let's go back to the beginning of the interview when the minister said, oh, well, it's not as bad as mm. it's going to be. He's sending out the wrong signal there to everybody. He's sending out the wrong political signal. He's sending out the wrong signal to local authorities and to his own staff. He's got to be back to what he was doing a couple of, uh, last year of being much stronger about the, the requirement that the belief that we can actually solve this problem and that we need to be constantly increasing what we're doing until we actually see that happen. Okay, we'll leave it there for now. Thank you, as always, though, for joining us on the programme today. Mike Allen, Advocacy Director with Focus Ireland. Michael Michael Reed on on LMFM. LMFM. Now, some of uh, the comments coming to us uh, today, a lot of people are in touch. Thanks if you have uh, taken the time to call or text us uh, this morning. Uh, Good morning, Michael, says somebody. I'm getting a a bit tired about this problem at RTA. I think we're all getting a bit tired of it uh, at this stage. Uh, And I think we're going to be worn out by the end of it. Uh, The government audit, I think, is uh, to take eight months and uh, they'll be making monthly reports uh, and we have this ongoing stuff. Uh, Two Oireachtas committees, again, the Media Committee and the Public Accounts Committee meeting uh, this week to deal with uh, the RTE expenses Uh, and an hour or two hours will be given over to statements on RTE in the Dáil today. Uh, So there's a lot more to come. Uh, Our caller says we have to remember Remember, though, that 
this is going on in all of the public services and don't get me started on the banks they're all in this together big salaries and bonuses and expenses thanks very much uh, for that uh, I think that's one of uh, the points that Tanisha was making Michal Martin in response uh, to Ronan Mullins' bill which would cap the salaries of people working in RTE uh, because they tried to cap the salaries of the bankers to 500,000 it turned out bankers don't get out of bed for less than 500,000 and uh, they had uh, to change that. Uh, Betty Daly in touch with us. Um, Not sure I understood your message completely Betty, do my best on it. She says listening to the salaries of uh, the RTE uh, presenters and the TDs um, which union are they in? They get thousands of euro of a, a rise at the drop of a hat while real hard working people have to strike for an increase. Thanks, uh, Betty. Of course, uh, they're not, well, they could be in trade unions, I suppose, uh, but uh, they're not employees, uh, the fellas uh, that we're talking about in RTE. Uh, Tom says, seriously, having uh, this conversation with Ronan is just laughable. Silver spoon of politics, unelected and paid a fortune, says Tom. Thank you indeed for that, Tom. Um, why don't RTE executives fight back, Ray and Navin wonders, uh, fight back against the government about the massive spending that was wrong and the free flights with the partners for St. Patrick's Day? Uh, the HSE, the GAA, we just give away millions, etc. They're all as bad as each other, I think, is what Ray is saying. Why should RTE uh, have to put up with the criticism? Uh, would you mind asking uh, Rona Mullen how much an hour Ryan Turbidy was earning from Siobhan? Um, I, I I don't know. I didn't get the chance. I don't know if Ryan, uh, Ronan uh, Mullen would have known. Uh, but it was half. This is the ironic thing about it. Uh, a lot of people are up in arms uh, about what Ryan Tuberty has been earning. I think most people are up in arms about how RTE hid it. Uh, but uh, it's only half of what Pat Kenny was earning uh, 10 or 15 years ago. Ryan Tuberty on about half a million. Pat Kenny back then on a million. That's before the cuts started to kick in. <laughs> so I don't know. Um, is that better or worse? Uh, somebody says uh, it's the 4th of July uh, that I said the 4th of April. Did I say the 4th of April at the start? Uh, yeah, was that a senior moment? Wouldn't be surprised if it was. Per, per, apologies if I said that. It's, uh, of course, the 4th of July, Independence Day. Uh, and uh, happy Independence Day to you. Sean in Dublin 9, thank you as well for your WhatsApp message. Sean says, some journalist reporters seem reluctant to call Ryan Tubridy out in the RTE debacle. Is it because he's one of their own? That they don't want to dish the dirt out on him? I bet if he was a politician or having any other occupation, they'd be ripping him apart. These journalists should forget about personal loyalties in reporting otherwise what's the point of us believing anything they say says Sean in Dublin 9 well I'm not sure uh, what Ryan Tuberty can be called out on Sean uh, I think uh, that's the point he didn't speak up and said RTE was putting wrong information into the public domain and he had a secret deal with RTE uh, but I don't think there was any wrongdoing in it. Um, as far as we understand, uh, at this stage, certainly there was uh, no uh, indication of wrongdoing. Just didn't say, oh, by the way, um, you said I was earning uh, so much. Uh, there's an extra 345,000 you seem to have forgotten about. Uh, any reason you didn't mention that and bring it to the attention of everybody. Anyway, um, some uh, people very upset uh, 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 still, it seems, at what's happening in RTA and uh, the greed that we've been 
hearing about. Now, speaking of greed, let's speak about greed with hotels uh, and what they're charging youngsters uh, who are hoping to see the Taylor Swift concert on the 28th and the 29th of June next year in the Aviva Stadium. Uh, As you've been hearing, hotels are costing between 350 and 1,000 euro. Uh, Unless you manage to get a room in the Radisson Blue Hotel over the weekend for 252 euro. Apparently, uh, they were selling... Uh, rooms for 252 euro which is a bargain (laughs) to sleep in a bed for 252 euro for one night Uh, I don't know if that includes breakfast or anything like that uh, or dinner or anything like that or (laughs) if you get driven to the concert Uh, I don't think so I think it's 252 euro for the room for the night but then the hotel cancelled Uh, because they had overbooked uh, many rooms. They did say that they would pay €75 towards the difference for a different hotel. Uh, um, And somebody was suggested to go 14 kilometres away from uh, the city centre to find a hotel, according to the Irish Times today. That's uh, upset a a lot of people. But this gouging that's going on by the hotels is unbelievable, given how... Uh, And it's a familiar story. They've had the poor mouth on them for some time saying we're crippled uh, by COVID, by the recession, by this, that and the other. We need help and hospitality. Uh, And uh, the uh, rate of VAT was reduced from 13.5% to 9%. Uh, But the price of hotels. Uh, Imagine spending €1,000 for a night in a hotel. Because while many young people think that anxieties are focused on obtaining tickets, The anxieties of many parents are focused on affording accommodation. From looking at Booking.com this morning, there isn't a single hotel room available in Dublin for under €350 for either of the nights of the Taylor Swift concerts, and they're on next year. As if that isn't expensive enough, we have in recent days seen rampant price gouging from Dublin hotels, some raising the price of a room from €359 to an incredible €999 for the night of the concert, and this is before the tickets have even been released. Minister Ryan described this as shocking last weekend, but what has he done about it? And it's not just hotels that are guilty of price gouging. One landlord has a two-bedroom apartment priced at €20,000 for the same weekend. How is this accessible for my constituents in Donegal, Taoiseach, who are undoubtedly the most affected by this disgraceful display of greed because of their distance from the capital? I'm highlighting the Taylor Swift concerts in particular because we know that she has a lot of young fans who cannot travel independently and who will, will require adult supervision. But sadly, this is not new or, new or unique. Price gouging has been an issue with almost every live event that has taken place in recent years, from concerts to Ireland Games to GAA finals. This issue has affected fans of all genres of music and fans of all types of levels of the sport. But it's rural fans that are affected most. It is yet again another example of the immense greed and selfishness that has taken hold in this country and which is completely unacceptable and unscrupulous during this cost of living crisis. Yeah, that's uh, Thomas Pringle speaking in uh, the Dáil last week and uh, as you probably know or uh, may have guessed listening to him there, he's a, a TD for Johnny Gall. Uh, the Taoiseach Leo Bradker wasn't arguing the point uh, but he did say that there's two sides to the story. I, I have spoken to hoteliers about this. Um, they have their story to tell, and their story to tell is that uh, the coverage uh, in the media has been unfair, um, that if you tried to book a hotel more than a year ahead, it's, it's the rack 
rate you get, it's not necessary the rate that they charge, and they want that point to be made, uh, so I have made it. Um, I've made the point very strongly back to them, um, and it is like pr price gouging and taking advantage of people and hiking prices um, on very popular weekends is bad business. Uh, it's how your business gets a bad reputation, um, it's how your city or town gets a bad re reputation, and it's how your wider industry um, gets a bad reputation. Tishakli of Radker. Our telephone number is 0419832000. Text or WhatsApp 0861800658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, the Israelis are using drones uh, to drop bombs on Janine. They're tearing up the streets with uh, bulldozers. Uh, there's explosions and gunfire. Uh, at least 10 have been killed, hundreds injured at uh, this stage, and it is no wonder that thousands of people are fleeing for their lives. Let's uh, speak to Mark Price, who's uh, the founding member of the Irish Neutrality League and co-chair of uh, the Irish anti-war movement. Good morning to you, Mark, and thanks uh, for joining us. It really is shocking what's happening in the West Bank right now. Yeah, really. Um, there's uh, it's a kind of a concerted attempt um, to root out uh, any resistance to Israel's control of the West Bank. Um, remember that the Jenin is a place where the Palestinian Authority effect effectively has no uh, jurisdiction. Um, I don't know if your listeners kind of fully aware of what that means, but since, since the Oslo Agreement, most of the West Bank is kind of policed by the Palestinian Authority on behalf of Israel, except for certain, if you like, pockets of resistance, and Jenin is one of them. Um, and this is an attempt by Netanyahu's government to, if you, oh, if you like, surgically remove that uh, that point of resistance. Um, uh, and it's shocking. I mean, it's it's completely against international law, targeting civilian areas like this, uh, densely populated civilian areas where it's impossible to escape um, uh, injury and death. Uh, and that's why I think a qu at least a quarter, they say, of the population of the refugee, or of Jenin, mm. or no, of the camp, rather, have um, fled at this stage. Yeah, now let's hear uh, how it was announced uh, by the Israeli Prime Minister. Late last night, the IDF launched a comprehensive action against terrorist strongholds in Jenin. In recent months, Jenin has become a safe haven for terrorists. As I speak, our troops are battling the terrorists with unyielding resolve and fortitude while doing everything, everything, to avoid civilian casualties. I have no doubt that as Israel exercises its inherent right of self-defense, the United States will stand firmly by our side. Right, that's uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, I think uh, the most interesting part of that was how he expected to have the approval of the United States. It doesn't seem as though he was wrong either. Uh, yes, if we get both from the US and the UK, um, make, you know, this. the UK, didn't, uh, I thought the UK was slightly different because Rishi Sunak's um, spokesperson said... Uh, Stressed a little bit more the problem of um, the, of the humanitarian problem, the problem of civilians. Uh, the Americans are, but both of them lead with uh, we we support the right of Israel to defend to, to defend itself, which is the kind of the, mm. the, the, the starting point by dropping bombs on civilians. Point. Excuse me by dropping bombs on civilians. 
Yes, I mean, this is, um, it's extraordinary. Like, just a couple of things, Michael. There's, you know, mm. this year alone, um, I just reading here, 103 Palestinians killed in the West Bank so far, and as against 24 Israelis. And I'm not, I don't think we should get into this kind of who who's suffering more, but this is the, this is the pattern, is it, is it not? I mean, this is like a vastly disproportionate um, war. It's not a war as such. It's, um, it's, it's been called politicized by somebody once. Um, it's an attempt to get rid of a whole people uh, or to subject them to a kind of domination which allows Israel to continue to expand its settlements. This is what the, this is the backdrop to all of this. Um, Diane Butu is quoted in Al Jazeera this morning that she's a Palestinian lawyer. She's saying that Israel has have made clear that there are three options available for Palestinians, either to leave, mm. uh, remain as residents, but not as citizens of any state. And the third option is, if you resist, we are going to crush you. And this is, this is the message that, uh, that Netanyahu and his coalition are sending now. And this is a return to the dark days of the last intifada of, of 2005. Um, and God knows where this is going to lead to. Mm. The, the truth is the American, oh, sorry, rather the Israeli government at this stage are um, really re- reverting to uh, extreme, um, extreme authoritarian uh, measures. Mm. Um, and and showing no concern whatsoever for international norms. And the question is, how long will their backers in Europe, in America, continue to stand by them? Yeah, and uh, giving people two hours, uh, I think, which was uh, the case last night, to uh, evacuate uh, really is impossible. For It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Some people, uh, you'll have elderly, sick, frail people uh, who will find it difficult uh, to get on the move as quickly as that. And uh, that warning to get out uh, remains. And it would seem wise, uh, although you may object to it in principle, it would seem wise to get out of there because it looks like there's going to be a massacre. I mean, it's not the first time they've gone into Jenine and uh, they're no strangers to attacking ambulances or hospitals for that matter. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it, it, it is absolutely brutal. Before I forget, Michael, can I announce uh, the IEPFC are holding a rally at the Spire at 5.30? I, I just saying it now, uh, slightly interrupting the, the conversation, yeah. uh, because I might forget otherwise, but I would encourage people to come out on the street. Um, the Irish are being brilliant uh, at showing their support. Yes, the Irish-Palestine Solidarity Campaign. IEPSC, Irish Palestine IPSC are just they're convenient there'll be lots of groups there I'm sure mm. 5.30 at um, the Spire this, this evening um, just to show solidarity um, our government are playing you know this this kind of they constantly having to keep an eye of, uh, of, uh, over their shoulder to their kind of if you like their backers in, in Europe and America um, so on the one hand if you like trying to uh, square the circle between Irish people who support Palestinians and mm. the, uh, if you like, the, the ruling elites around the world who are, continue to give Israel uh, preferential trade treatment and recognition uh, and to turn a blind eye um, to, to these um, war crimes. That's, that's all they are at this point, just war crimes. Mm. Yeah, um, one of the tendencies, I imagine that figure is much higher at the moment, but one of uh, the tendencies that I think was 16 years uh, of age and uh, people of all ages leaving with nowhere to go. Uh, the, the, the Janine was um, a refugee camp uh, back in the 1950s, but it, it's become uh, a very overcrowded place to live generally. It's become home for a, a lot of people. But if they leave their homes, they've nowhere to go to. And it's going back, yeah, exactly. And it's this is the, the the tragedy and the reality of this is that these camps were formed after the Nakba in forty eight, when people who lived in what is now the state of Israel mostly were um, effectively kicked out of their houses, um, you know, their own houses. This is not a long time ago, nineteen forty eight. Um, you know, my my dad, who's passed away some years ago, he was like eighteen years of age um, when this when this, when this happened. Um, and some of them, a lot of them ended up in these camps in Lebanon and in, in, in um, Jenin, places like this. And, of course, they're absolutely impoverished, mostly. Um, and, and they're, of course, um, completely radicalized. Not completely, excuse me. Mm. But, you know, they're, they, they are, uh, they're not, they can't accept this regime uh, that's imposed on them. Um, and and it's this is an excuse, of course, um, to go in and commit these crimes mm. against them. Well, it's going to result in a, a lot of Palestinian martyrs, isn't it? Well, um, yes. I mean, it's it's uh, we see how it's it's ongoing, and we don't. Mm. I'm trying to keep up with it here. Um, it it seems to be ongoing. Yeah, but I mean, um, they're really uh, it's David and Goliath. Uh, I mean, the might of the Israeli army. Israel uh, is a very powerful army, a nuclear power, uh, and uh, it looks like they're intent on crippling the city. Yeah, it, it, and it's part of this broader strategy to root out resistance to to um, to Israel. And remember, this is for the purposes of expansion. This is for the purposes of expanding settlements and and land grab. It's not, uh, you know, the, the the argument about terrorism is always used, um, but the background to this is an ongoing policy of l- land appropriation uh, in the uh, in the Palestinian territory. Uh, in uh, you know an erosion of any hope of a two-state solution 
the idea that there could be a Palestinian state at this stage is completely unrealistic because it's been so, the, the areas of, popula- of, of pa- Palestinian population have been so completely circumscribed and, and narrowed. And, um, and there's hardly any resistance. This is the point. And Israel know this. And this is what this is about. It's just to stamp out one of the centres of resistance. Mm. Yeah, well, what does that mean? Uh, does, that, does that mean crippling um, the Jenin refugee camp, uh, as it's called, uh, and anybody who remains there? Well, it seems to be. They're, um, they've always uh, regarded, remember Sabra Shatila and places like this, they've always regarded these camps as hotbeds of, of mm. terrorism and they're highly dense urban uh, structures um, which are really hard to control. And so the IDF have had a long-standing policy, um, I think instigated by Ariel Sharon and others um, way back, 20 years ago at least, um, of brutally in- interjecting into these camps um, and, and just rooting out um, the population, just actually making it impossible for people to live there. The purpose here is to make it impossible to go on living in these camps. And as you say, Michael, where are these people going to go? It's not like, mm. you know, European countries are going to be opening their doors for these refugees. We've seen already um, uh, before um, the plight of Palestinians. Just look at Gaza, this the largest open-air prison, they say, in the world. Um, and this is, it just seems to be, it is just like an open, it's an open wound on the world is yeah. the situation of the Palestinians. It really is. It's mm. an open wound. And, and there's no serious attempt at the level of international operators, the powers in the world, to address this mm. and to take, and that, that, that means standing up to Israel. Well, and, it means standing up, does it not, to the Jewish vote in America? Well, I would say not the Jewish vote. I just wouldn't use that word, because, not because I'm afraid of, of making any kind of wrong statement, because the pub- public opinion fluctuates, and it really there's a, a huge reaction among uh, Jewish people in America and everywhere against the uh, extre- ex- increasingly extreme measures of Likud, Netanyahu, and some of these people he has brought into government. I mean, he has people, Ben Gavir, people in government with them, who are, you know, it's the terrorists. <laughs> They're just... Uh, and they're, they have pictures of terrorists in their offices. They're, they are, I mean, there is an argument that, the, that Zionism in its project um, could only end up here because it could only end up having to get rid of the people who live there because the, there's always going to be resistance. You cannot, you, you know, you, you, you can't just, you can't just put a lid on people who have been kicked out of their homes. Remember, this is not that long ago when all of these people, whatever they were, 750,000 people, mm. were kicked out of their homes and forced to live in these horrible camps in absolute poverty. And they're really angry. And, uh, you know, this is something that they, any attempt to accommodate them um, it has to be a serious, there has to be a serious idea of a country where everybody is treated equally and where Palestinians have equal rights. And this is not the trajectory of Israel in the last uh, while. Okay. I mean, All right, less, and less, less and less like a, a, a democracy or, you know, it's given up, I think, in many ways, uh, less and less like a place where, which will guarantee the rights of all its citizens. This is exactly the opposite of what we see going on at the moment, is, is demonizing a part of the population and, in fact, turning them into non-citizens, as Diane Bhutto says. Uh, they're, they're stateless people. 
um, who God knows what will happen to them. Okay. What, did, what was it? Five o'clock, you said, I think, was it? Uh, 5.30 at the oh, fire, Michael. 5.30 at the fire. people yeah. if they're in town on their way home from work, mm-hmm. divert, uh, if you're heading down towards uh, Westland Row, you know, divert to the spire for, for even for half an hour, an hour or whatever, uh, to show solidarity. It really means a lot to Palestinians, okay. the, the solidarity. Half five at the spire. Okay, Mark, thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Mark Price, founding member of the Irish Neutrality League. Uh, he's also the co-chair of the Irish Anti-War Movement. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, I think uh, the situation in uh, the West Bank uh, will be raised in the Dáil today. We know there'll be a lot of uh, discussion uh, about RTE, but you can expect a lot of discussion this week about uh, the European Nature Restoration Law because a motion that will go before TDs on Wednesday is calling on the government to unequivocally reject the draft regulation. It's been sponsored by Independent TD, Michael Fitzmaurice, who's on the line. And a very good morning to you, Michael, and thanks for joining us on the programme today. What if the government accepted your motion and rejected the nature restoration law as it's currently proposed by the European Commission? If it gets voted through in the European Parliament, uh, would government be able to block it from being implemented in this country? Well, first of all, good morning to you and your listeners. Um, my understanding is that um, the nature restoration law in its current form that the Commission has proposed um, is gone through agriculture, has been rejected. Um, and this isn't just Ireland, this is um, all other countries. It has gone through the fisheries section, it has been rejected. It went into environment. Um, it has been, as you have covered already, I think, in your programme over the last number of weeks, 44, 44. But the problem is it keeps going on then once it's not put to bed. Now, there is, and let's be clear on this, it's not just we're, you know, totally against all this mm-hmm. stuff. Um, there is a Council of Ministers proposal, Michael, that um, would be more realistic The talks about uh, bringing the figures down that in Ireland, for, in, for instance, um, if it was done properly, would... Uh, just encompass state land and what we are looking for is that that would be tweaked to make sure that uh, the wording of it would be used that no private lands uh, would be used uh, in relation to this um, I've made it very clear and look at there's been talk about scaremongering and all of that I've made it very clear that Bordnemona lands would work up to 2030 um, the commission proposal talks specifically and this is this is the part of it that really catches the ordinary people, be it in the Cooley Mountains or be it wherever, mm. um, where there's marginal type peaty soil, um, agricultural drained peatland. And agricultural drained peatland, for anybody that's of the farming community, would understand that to be laying down at the back of the fields, that would be getting a lesser quality. That years ago, the same EU gave the farmer a grant to put shores in it or we'll say drain it um, and push grass in it um, and that's what we're concerned about because um, it affects people in your uh, listenership area it affects people in the northwest especially the west the midlands obviously everyone knows about the type of ground in parts of the midlands and down as far as actually west cork um, it is an ill thought out um, document and in fairness, if you look at it, Environment Committee, if you go through the years of Environment Committee, uh, when a proposal goes in, it generally flies through. 
there is a lot of countries, um, especially Germany and especially Holland and especially the like Poland and countries like that, um, see the consequences uh, of this, and they are the. That's why the council ministers came together to bring a different proposal, and those proposals um, on the 11th or the 12th, I understand of this month will be going before the European Parliament, the original proposal from the Commission, the Council of Ministers' proposal. Amendments needs to be put to the Council of Minister one, but um, this needs to be done because we don't, I don't want to see a legacy left. It's not now, it's not next year, or it's not up to 2030, but after that, a group of, of farming communities around the country that would be forced to do something that would actually decimate not alone the farm because like they'll talk about giving money there is no new mm. budgets let's be clear on that but even if there were it's not alone the farmer you can give a farmer money but you cannot replace the community because if I rewet all my land well I don't need to live in the area I'm not going out looking at kettle or sheep mm. or cows or whatever uh, in the mornings I don't need to live there and we're trying to keep communities going and that is the main that is the main thrust of, of your motion isn't it uh, that farmers aren't forced uh, yeah. to uh, change how uh, they look after their land uh, or, or um, the land itself by wetting it uh, that it's not mandatory that it's not compulsory uh, and Correct. that it, and that if it is voluntary that they are paid for it yeah and, and I made that very clear but that the, the wording is that absolutely like you can at the moment, the Council of Ministers' proposal, and if it's tweaked, there's a few tweaks to be done to it, but if it's tweaked, it would the state land would cover, in my opinion, nearly it all. Um, but the one thing, and, and down the road, and I have no objection under an environmental scheme, if a government wants to, the likes of acres that we have at the moment, if there's an option there that someone that wants to go down that road decides, well, I'd like to see that in an acre scheme or a new acre scheme, um, that in an environmental scheme that they would uh, do it but when you're doing the likes that Michael and the wording of this document when you look at it even all documents is that once it's rewetted it's forever and we have seen for many years and we've seen it under the Habitats Directive when the so-called uh, SACs were put in place that there was schemes brought in for four or five years and then bang gone mm. And you are left there with egg in your face. So it's a realistic proposal. I would be mm. surprised if the government don't accept it because the government themselves are now backing the Council of Ministers' proposal. Um, I would be surprised if they refuse it or if they don't accept it. But let's see. And I think it needs to be brought okay. to the attention. We are also having, um, for people in your listenership area, um, Marion Harkin, Michael McNamara, and myself have put together a public meeting next Saturday, next Sunday uh, in the Shearwater Hotel in Ballinasloe at one o'clock where we have invited, Pat O'Toole is actually the moderator from the Irish Farmers mm-hmm. Journal, uh, we have invited all the MEPs to, for the public to know what's happening. We also need to give an information on the different proposals because out there there's a lot of confusion when you have different proposals and on top of that we've invited the farmer organizations who represent the farmers um, to give their views on it and we also have um, a legal perspective of the thoughts of that uh, to the public to give them the information that they need because this isn't so to a few other people that it's affected this is thousands of people in a lot of areas 
greater around the country. And possibly more complicated, possibly more complicated than people think. Uh, it was interesting to hear you say that, in your opinion, there's enough state land that could be re-wetted to meet the targets because you're also calling for an immediate audit of state lands and yeah. land owned by Bordnamona and Quilcha to see if that is the case. And further to that, you're saying if those lands are re-wetted, what will it mean for the lands adjacent to them? Yeah, yeah. well, what we, in fairness, the National Parks would have done is say, um, re-wetting on some designated areas um, but in fairness to them, um, they have gone round to each farmer individually. This is a cumbersome job that no one caught themselves. And they have talked to every farmer individually. They have agreed where the line would be, the way that it wouldn't have any effect on the farmer. But there has been incidents um, where the state land, we call it Bordemona land, where the rewetting um, has been going on. And unfortunately, there will be farmers claiming that the fields near it would have been affected. It is a complicated process. There's no doubt about that, because you have the things like upwelling and all the different, uh, you know, problems that can be associated with it. But you need to do this in a fa- in a in a manner that the farmer living next door to whoever is rewetting, be it Bordnamona or mm. Quilcha or whoever, is not adversely affected. By, by the actions because some of those farmers could be put out of business and we mm. need to do this carefully. What's the solution there, Michael? I, I mean, do you not re-wet the land uh, because of uh, the negative impact it has uh, on your neighbour or do you compensate your neighbour? Well, first of all, you don't re-wet it if it's having a negative impact on your neighbour, in my opinion. Um, you can. There are things you can do, Michael, like staying back extra metres that won't put the pressure of the we'll say the flow of water or the the, the volume uh, near them. Do you understand it? There's, mm. there's ways and theories of doing it, but you make sure that you work with them. That's all I'm asking, but you work with them and make sure that it doesn't affect them. And that's achievable. That's, this isn't something that's not achievable. It is achievable, um, but we have to make sure we do that because, unfortunately, a few incidents have shown up. There is large amounts of land um, as I've already outlined, done by the National Parks, and in fairness, um, I have yet to see, and if there was any problem, in fairness to the likes of the National Parks, they have gone and, and, and started to rectify it straight away, and that's why we need cooperation, working with people to resolve those issues, because we cannot allow that to happen on privately owned lands that people aren't interested in doing. On top of that, I think it's, it's noteworthy as well, to make it clear that, um, you know, they're talking about emissions out of PG-type soil. It has now emerged, because uh, in fairness to the Chagas, they are doing a lot of research on it, and it's now emerged that these emissions were up to 60%, um, basically the figures that was given was up to 60% wrong. Now, that's a huge, huge difference compared with what they were working on, because we were working on figures from the likes of Holland and other countries, the European norm, which was totally different to our country as well. Mm. Uh, not aware of that. Uh, isn't it? Uh, 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 doesn't, don't uh, the bogs uh, treat uh, or tackle emissions in two ways? One, uh, if uh, they're dry like that, they give off emissions, but when they're wet, that they absorb emissions. Well, that's, that's the 
theory that's in it, but now there's research done in Galway in the university that say when you re-rest a bog, you could be actually for up to 100 years putting out methane. Uh, so like, you just have to, this is a balance now to be very clear about it. And mm. um, there is what, what we have to do and what Ireland is doing at the moment and what Ireland has to do is this, this, this proposal that's in Europe that has been put together, the, the commission proposal, and I want to deal specifically with the commission proposal, be it for hill farmers, and this just isn't lowland bog or anything like that. Mm. This also affects hill farmers because there's parts of it about rewilding hills and all of that. And um, the commission proposal was put together um, by people that probably just saw concrete and, and ash fields outside their window. They, they never really saw the, the, the bread and butter of, of, of the bogs. And what we need to do is make sure that we do not affect ordinary private lands belonging to people um, and that with the state land that they can tick the box and they need to do that. Um, and all, outside that, I have no problem, as I've said earlier, mm. that if the government wants to bring in a scheme to say Johnny or Mary down the road, if they'd like to do a piece of their ground or whatever, that's fine. That's mm. no problem. Mm. But let's not have it in a situation like the commission proposal where if you look at the figures, Michael, and this is the problem, if you look at the figures on the commission proposal, the state land would not fulfil the obligations and then you would be forced to use, the state would be forced to basically use private land and the state doesn't own agricultural drain peatland where cattle walk on. They don't own that. They own they own bog and they own the likes of Bordemona or whatever, mm-hmm. but that's not agricultural drain peatland. That's not going green grass. And that's the part of it that we have to watch to protect the farming community right around this country in, in all counties. This isn't just my, in the west of Ireland, this is in all counties, as I've said, in the Coolies, in Monaghan, in Cavan, mm. in all the areas that your listenership goes out to the big parts of me is affected by it. Um, and we have to make sure that those farmers can continue farming the way they're farming at the moment, unless they voluntarily want to do something and that's for the state down the road to bring something in if they want to do that. Okay, well your motion will go before the doll tomorrow. Uh, I'm sure it'll be a passionate debate and thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Independent TD for Roscommon Galway, Michael Fitzmaurice. Michael Reed on LMFM. And the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland is calling on the government to take the opportunity of the budget in October to make life better for people who have dementia, their families and the people who care for them. Cormac Cahill, Head of Advocacy, Research and Public Affairs with the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland, joins us now. And thank you indeed uh, for doing so, Cormac. Uh, you've uh, published your pre-budget Budget submission, Dementia Can't Wait, Dementia Support to Empower Lives. Uh, and you're calling on the government to invest in €21.3 million Euro in services. Tell us a little bit more, if you would, please. Yeah, look, it's an ambitious ask for the government. And while I suppose look, I have to acknowledge we've had really good support from the government, we have a very supportive minister. I suppose what, what we found from doing our consultations for the pre-budget submission is that, look, uh, uh, you know, a lot of people with dementia want more services, they want more community services. We also found the family carers as well are, are struggling financially, 
a lot of stress there as well. So, so, so I suppose what 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 we're calling on the government really is to, I suppose, just to to honour what's in the program for government, what's in the national dementia strategy from 2014, and obviously then just the the model of care for dementia in Ireland is is really just to bring that from paper to practice. So, we've we've kind of broken down a lot of the asks, but they're all for community supports. We want to keep people in the community living as well as possible and for long as possible in the in the community because that's where two thirds of people who are living with dementia uh, uh, still are. So mm. I suppose our overall message is to fund, uh, uh, listen to our to our funding asks, and just to make sure that people with dementia and their f- families don't go short of uh, vital vital services that that they really need. Right. Uh, and uh, you say there's a, a growing number of people in, in this country who have uh, dementia. Is that because dementia is more prevalent or is it because the population is ageing more? Yeah, well, I suppose I suppose age is a, is a huge contributing factor. It's not the reason why people um, develop dementia, but it is increasing. There's a number of health factors uh, uh, that may uh, contribute uh, to that. There's lots of research uh, uh, going on in, in that area at the moment. But what, what, what we can what, what we what, what we can say is that there's an estimated 64,000 people right across the country, but is that that, that is expect, expected to double now over the next 20 to 25 years. So there's there's no doubt that there's going to be huge um, surge in demand for these vital supports and services. So I suppose our mm. message to the government is very much to. We need funding now, we need funding for today and tomorrow, but also for the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years is that people, more people with dementia, there's going to be a growing growing need. And that's what we really found from our consultations from this pre-budget submission cycle this year was that there's, there's huge waiting lists for people to access services, but also people who, who, who have a service, they want additional hours as well. So I suppose what we're really calling for is extra resources to meet that ever-increasing public demand. As I said, 64, that's 64,000 people right across the country, but it's, it's, it affects people at different times and on different ages because of that one in 10 mm. people who are diagnosed with dementia are actually under the age of 65. So it's really important that well, we have services for people along a, a spectrum, yeah. a spectrum uh, yeah. mm. of of need, really. Okay, yeah, because uh, uh, it, it uh, isn't always severe or, or can progress. Uh, I think as uh, people have experienced, twenty one point three million euro is a very specific amount of money. Uh, but you've identified gaps in services uh, and you've broken down that money uh, in terms of how those gaps may be filled uh, and. Uh, you're supporting uh, the case for filling those gaps uh, by talking to people and you've also published uh, a survey of uh, those uh, who uh, experience uh, dementia uh, and that includes people working uh, with people who have dementia. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, look, as part of this, obviously, we're going to be releasing a national survey in September. So, a part of this, we've announced some initial findings. And again, they are they are quite stark. I mean, obviously, found that 38% of dementia carers are struggling with their caring responsibilities. 27% of people living with dementia feel lonely often. So, it is quite stark, especially those stats around the carers. You know, like 43% of carers reported that they visited a healthcare professional in the last month just on account of their own health. So, a lot of the research that we've done, even going back to 2017, I think it was, our de-stress report showed that carers are really, really struggling. So, one of the key asks is around family carers this year is that we're, 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 we want to bring down our own waiting lists 
for our online family carer training program. So we're looking for more funding for that. But we're also looking for um, funding to set up a, a professional counselling and psychotherapy service as well. Because some people who come to us, perhaps they, 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 they especially carers, they may not want access to a, a particular service. They might need, just need someone to talk to, you mm. know, because of the stress or the, the, the financial or the emotional stress that they're under. So I think that ask for the for the family carers is is a huge one and and, and, mm. and their concerns and, and, and their issues I suppose is really borne out in 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 that um in that survey that, mm. that, that we've just completed. Yeah and the regressive nature of the disease is heartbreaking, isn't it? It's very, very difficult uh, for families yeah. to live through dementia, let alone to care for a loved one with dementia. Yeah, look, it's 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 absolutely life changing for the for the person um, uh, who's been diagnosed, but also for the the, the family carer, um, and also for the wider community as well. You know, it does impact the wider community and the family network and siblings and 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 so on. And again, that's why those supports the the family carer supports because if if you're caring for somebody living with dementia, it's life life changing for. For, for both the person living with dementia and the and the um, and the spouse as well, mm. so it's just really really important that we we put those 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 things in place and and also to realise that um, you know one of the key services we're we're, we're asking for is, is weekend supports and services as well because through through talking to people on a day to day basis we found that people want support at the weekend as well because look dementia doesn't end on a Friday no. and that's why we're, we're we're asking for, you know, 20 of these weekend activity clubs. Mm. It doesn't end on a Friday or it doesn't end at five o'clock. Uh, it's exactly. a- around the clock. And uh, I think people are often very afraid uh, of waking up to discover that somebody's left the house and out uh, on the road uh, and well, are of uh, particular danger to themselves. Yeah, obviously, that, that, that's a huge concern as well so obviously we, we would we would say look to people who are maybe experiencing those early signs of dementia those early symptoms whether it's you know getting stuck for words or you might be misplacing things on a regular basis and you know losing track of time if that happens over a period of time you may need support you may need advice so we, we do have a national helpline there lots of supports um, uh, uh, and things like that up on our website as well because it is a frightening experience for people if they are having those early signs and symptoms or they've maybe just received a diagnosis or they're living with dementia in, in their community it's still a frightening time so look if, if, if people need support advice a bit of help please do do ring our, our national helpline um, and, and obviously we're calling on the government to help those people through this tr- tricky time and especially those, those key support services that are in the community where the majority of people living with dementia want to stay and live long as possible for as well as possible in the community. Our, our ask to the government is really going to help those people. Yeah, um, it, it, it's like cancer, isn't it? Uh, there's been a long search or a search going on for a long time yeah. uh, looking for a, a cure. I think uh, there is some hope, is there not, uh, of uh, breaking the code to whatever is going on in people's minds that leads to dementia? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, to be honest now, and uh, with you and your listeners, I mean, there is there is no cure for dementia at the moment, but there's so much hope out there. There's so much research going on in terms of disease modifying therapies. So th- these are kind of therapies. There's, there was one or two. There was lecanemab and donanemab, um, uh, which 
which basically there was positive news around last year. So we're actually waiting on some, some more news now this week around those. But they could be coming possibly if if if, if the regulators think they're, they're safe enough and effective enough. They could be coming to Irish shores within the next year, 18 months. And basically they would help to slow down the progression of, of dementia for people in the early stages of dementia. So obviously not a not a wonder drug for for everybody. It's not a cure but there's hope there, and hopefully this research, this hopeful research, could be a breakthrough for other for other types of research in the future. For a long time, there hasn't been much hope around um, dementia research, but these 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 two drugs do offer hope to slow down the progression of people um, who have um, you know dementia, yeah. especially in the in the in the early stages. So you're right, no wonder drug out there at the moment. I'm afraid there is no cure, but there's certainly hope on the horizon, and that. I think that's something to, to welcome. Okay, Cormac, thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme today. The Alzheimer's Society of Ireland National Helpline is 1-800-341-341. That's 1-800-341-341. It's open Monday to Friday, 10 to 5 in the evening and Saturday mornings at 10 o'clock till 4 in the afternoon. The email is helpline at alzheimer.ie and there's a live chat on the website alzheimer.ie. And thanks, as I say, to Cormac Cahill, Head of Advocacy, Research and Public Affairs with the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, as is usual, around this time on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a number of incidents Garda are investigating locally and perhaps you can assist uh, with uh, those investigations. Sergeant Mark Doran of Laytown Garda Station joins us uh, for this week's report. Thank you, Sergeant. We're going to begin with a missing persons appeal. This is a, a man that has been missing uh, from his home in Dundalk for over a fortnight at this stage. Yeah, that's right, uh, Michael. Um, good morning to you. Um, there's a real concern there for Mr. Jim Webb um, from the Riverside Drive area of Dundalk. Um, we're aware that he left his home around the 19th of June 2023, just gone. Family are very concerned for his welfare and his behaviour is very much out of character in this regard. Some sightings are alleged to have occurred but we, we have yet have been able to confirm those sightings and the family are very concerned for his welfare. We would ask anyone um, that may know um, Mr Webb, that's a Mr Jim Webb, born in 1972, if they are aware of him or may have seen him around the Dundalk area, to, to please contact Dundalk Garda Station there. Now, Garda aren't aware of what he was wearing at the time he went missing, so if anybody knows him or, or anybody has spoken to anybody who has, who has mentioned him, uh, please contact um, Dundalk Garda Station um, as soon as possible, please. And there's a second missing person you're appealing to people to contact you about if uh, they know of this lady's whereabouts. Uh, she's missing uh, from Drogheda since last Thursday. Yeah, correct, uh, Michael. That's another, we have another missing person there from the Drogheda area. This time it's Miss Rosaline Murphy. She's from the north, currently from the North Road area of Drogheda. Has not been seen since the 29th of June. Uh, again, Gardy are unaware of what Miss Murphy was wearing that would help people in relation to, to this um to this investigation, but um, she, what we do know is she's, is she's known to frequent the Toronto Town Centre area, and anyone who who knows or is aware of uh, where Miss Murphy is, that would contact Toronto Garda Station on 041-987-4200 or the Garda Confidential Line on one 800 
next to Navin where a, a man was attacked and robbed at a bus stop. Yeah, correct, Michael. Yeah, this uh, this happened on the Abbey Road there in Navin. This occurred on the 27th of June. A lone male was sitting at a bus stop there at Abbey Road at approximately 11pm at night. And on that date, uh, he was approached by two other males. A demand was made of him, I believe, for a cigarette. And when he refused, he was assaulted and a, and a small quantity of cash was taken from him. We'd ask anyone that was in that location in around the time and who may witness this robbery to please contact the Guardian at Navin at 046 903 That's 046 903 uh, and uh, another encounter that a totally innocent member of uh, the public had uh, with somebody that resulted in a robbery. Frightening experience, I imagine, too, uh, for this man in Drogheda. Yes, that's correct, Michael. Yeah, again, another robbery from the person there at SXL Lane in Drogheda on the 3rd of July. Uh, the male was out walking. He was approached by another man and threatened with a knife and, a, and again a quantity of cash was taken from him. Now unusually in comparison to the other incident, this happened on the, in, the, in during daylight hours which is between 12.30 and 1.45pm. Uh, again we've no better description of what the offending male was wearing at the time of the robbery but we do know that it did happen obviously in the court in the Bessexwell area of Drada and again we would ask anyone that may have been in that area at the time and may have witnessed this robbery please contact Drada Garrison on 041 987 4200 or the Guard Confidential Line on 1-800-666-111. A couple of burglaries to report on this week. The first of those at the business premises in Ashburn. Correct, Michael. Yes, that's right. The business premises there on the Fenry Street area of Ashburn was broken into overnight between the dates, the 29th and the 30th of June. The business premises there and um, a quantity of cash was taken if anybody was travelling through Ashburn or walking along the Frederick Street area in the late evening or into the early hours of those dates, that's the 29th to 30th of June, we would ask them to contact Ash- Ashburn Guard Station with any information that they feel, be it no, however slight, to uh, assist us in this investigation. And to a burglary that occurred last Wednesday in Navin next. That's right, Michael. Yeah, in Navin there on the night of the 20, on the early hours of the 28th of June, a private residence was entered to and uh, uh, supporting equipment, a bicycle and fishing equipment was stolen. Now, from CCTV obtained, we know that the suspect uh, left the Ashley Place area and headed towards the, the Clusco Park area in Navin after the burglary took place. Now, it would be unusual, as we know, to find somebody with fishing equipment possibly at that hour of the morning. So we would ask anyone who's in those areas at that time with the police contact Navin Garrison station with any information that they feel might help us to solve this crime. Okay, next to Dundalk uh, where a car was broken into on Sunday night. That's right, Michael. Yeah, again on the 2nd of July 2023, there at the Lars in Dundalk, between the hours of 10.30 and 11.30pm, a car was broken into between the above hours and a quantity of cash was stolen. Now, we don't have any CCTV there at the minute, but anyone who may have been in that area or was in the area and is able to help us with any um, with any sightings of something they may have felt was unusual with the police contact on Dark Guard Station or on the Guard Confidential Line on one eight hundred six 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 one one one. 
And uh, the last report uh, relates to uh, an incident again in Dundalk on Sunday night uh, and you're dealing with this as a probable random act of violence. Yeah, that's right, Mike. Yeah, again in Dundalk at the Patrick Street area of the town on the uh, evening of the 2nd of July, motor car was, was parked up there on the Patrick Street area and between the hours of 4.40pm and 8.40pm um, the car was just damaged there. Somebody walking by just ran broke the car window um, so did. So we're asking anybody that might have that were in that area at that time that if they saw this act taking place taking place or saw somebody acting suspicious with contact on Dark Air Station with any information that they may have or the Guard Confidential Line. Please Michael. Sergeant Mark Doran of Laytown Guard Station, thank you indeed. We'll return to the Guard Crime Desk in around the same time on next Tuesday's programme. Some comments that have come to us before we leave you today. Tom says the Palestinians are asking the wrong people for help because they aren't helping. Uh, I wonder what would happen if Russia or China came to help uh, the Palestinians. Uh, Here's hoping, says Tom. Thanks, as I say, for your message as always, Tom. Uh, We Julie in touch. Uh, Thanks very much, Julie, for making contact. She says, Michael, my dad was diagnosed with dementia three years ago. Very little help available to families so a patient can remain at home. GPs really don't want to know when help is needed. It's a very difficult journey dealing with dementia as a family, as well as the struggle for of caring for him. Thanks, uh, Julie. Margaret, in touch too, uh, sending us a text again this morning. Always good to hear from you, Margaret. She says, listening to what Israel is doing to Palestinians and has been doing for years, it sounds very much like ethnic cleansing. Uh, and that's supposed to be illegal in the world, just in case administrations in other countries don't know that or if they've forgotten what ethnic cleansing means. Here is a reminder. It's the practice of mass expulsion or killing of people from opposing ethnic or religious groups within a certain area. Are the Israelis trying to wipe out the Palestinian nation while the world watches with no consequences for Israel? Why is this allowed to happen? It's like shooting fish in a barrel the way Israel have Palestinians hemmed into a corner with no way out. Shame on everyone for allowing this to happen. Thanks uh, very much for that, Margaret. Um, We've uh, somebody in touch uh, about empty buildings. No one has to answer to the people in this country. Renovations of a building in Drogheda 12 million euro uh, and they've a building in the town that they bought for 8 million euro and hasn't been used since 2019 and this is 2023 shame on them thank you Marion Trim says greed three pensioners in one room in Carlingford 80 euro the slap in the face was no breakfast thank you Mary that's all we've time for for today thanks everybody who was in touch God willing we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM good morning bye bye the Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.